I don't know how many of you have been through a phase with an emerging human being where they're in the why stage. Usually about two years old, developmentally, you know, they take a couple of years to do the what and get the pieces figured out, and then they try to figure out how everything goes together and why stuff works. Why? And you answer the question, and what do they ask? Why? Why? You know, it can be something as simple as why is the sky blue, and why? Why? Every explanation you finally get to, well, you know, the molecular composition of the gaseous atmosphere... (laughs) The refraction of sunlight coming in and reflect. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> there is a generous comment in the Sermon on the Mount between the Beatitudes and what I call the Revolution. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is some of the most stunning, stunning words in Scripture. And uh, it's a sermon that Jesus preached. And uh, there's a generous There's a a generous comment between the Beatitudes and the Revolution. Uh, And and so he really answers the question, why? He starts like we did last week. I didn't know we were going to start a series last week. I I just let God lead me last week, and uh, I didn't even know if this is going to be a series. So it's going to have two parts. That's what I know about. And (laughs) so I guess that's a series. But... Nine times Jesus said, happy are the... He said, I want you to be happy. I have a plan for your happiness. But he was real clear, wasn't he, that my plan for happiness is the exact opposite of what you've been taught by the world. That the world is going to try to suck you into a plan of happiness where um, it's just not going to last. It's not going to work. It has momentary little pleasures to it along the way, but it's not happiness. And Jesus said, I've got an upside-down happiness for you that's eternal and it's paid for because he said, I paid for it for you. I bought it for you. I want to give it to you, he's saying. But the door is weird. It's for the poor in spirit, and it's happiness for the meek, and happiness for those who mourn. How can you say something like that, Lord? Have you never suffered? Come on. You know how that stuff works up in you, and then you realize the stupid thing you just said, right? <laughs> That's how it goes. And so he gives us this generous comment in answering the question, why? And because the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, they're both compelling and they're intimidating, aren't they? I mean, this is some strong stuff, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The stuff that he says, like, not, he says things like, you know, you've heard it said don't murder, but I tell you, if you ever get so angry with a brother that you hold them in contempt, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Ouch. What guy in here has never struggled with these words? Jesus said, I know you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Kid, how do you, how do you live under that? How do, how do you even begin to deal with this? Love your enemies, he says. The stuff we're going to get to, perhaps. And he's, don't judge, he says. Don't judge. Don't, don't fall into the trap of looking around you and deciding you're a head taller than anybody else on the earth. Because he said, with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So if you want to just start picking out deficiencies from your morally elevated position and others, said, you're welcome to do that, but that's how you'll be judged. I don't want that, do you? And he says these crazy things, and then he ends it up with this. He talks about these people who came to him. He says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He talked about these religious phonies, that they were doing the religious stuff, 
And I said, Lord, we were doing all this stuff. And he said these horrifying words to them. Depart from me. I never knew you. He said, it wasn't about doing stuff. It was about knowing you. I never, you never knew me. I never knew you. Everything that you were doing was on your own, motivated by something else other than the relationship that we have. And those are terrifying words, aren't they? And so this is why I call it a revolution, that God wants to do something in us that's radical. Turn everything upside down. And so he takes this little brief salt and light passage to tell us why that's so important. And the why is because of what Jesus said next. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Lord, help us. Come, explain this to us, Lord. The purpose of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, these caustic, difficult words, the purpose of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are to transform us into salt and light. He tells us, he starts with the Beatitudes. It says, I want to make you happy. I want to make you happy. I have a plan for your happiness. It's upside down. And then he follows this with this revolution of thought that changes all the price tags and everything about your life. He says, don't ever worry about anything. What? Things like that. And he says, the reason is, the why, is because I want to make you into salt and light. I, that's my plan for you, is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I want to transform you so radically, that's why these words are so hard. And because of the human condition, it will require a complete transformation in us in order for us to begin to resemble anything like salt and light. Because we're born just the opposite. And we're born with this intention for ourselves, yes? And he says, I want to flip that on its head. And I want to transform you into all the things that you have become for yourself. I want to transform you into salt and light for me. And that is such a radical transformation that the words of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, they hit us often like a two-by-four between the eyes. But I was glad he told us why. And we need to understand that as we spend some time in this Sermon on the Mount, these changes that are being called for, this transformation, that's the work of God in us. We can't do this ourselves. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Our best response is just to keep showing up into the presence of God, as you are, and letting him do the transformative work inside of you. But if I'm representing these words from Jesus correctly, and I think I am, according to him, it is at the center of the heart of God that we all be salt and light in the world. What does that mean? Well, salt, then in particular, it was an, it was an agent of purification and preservation. It purified and it preserved. You've heard the, and maybe had the experience of salt on a wound. Ouch. It's tough. And Jesus is saying, I am transforming you to become the, the agent of purification and preservation. 
And salt was used freely on, on meat, for example, in those days, pre-refrigeration era, to keep microbes and little worms and stuff from finding a home there so that it was still edible, to keep the decomposition from happening. And I believe the Lord in every way is saying, I want to transform you into something that I will pour into the world to stop the decomposition process. The world is dying, and I'm the answer, he's saying, and I want to use you, and I want to pour you into the wound of the world. It'll be caustic. People won't be happy about it. But it's my plan for their preservation. And then he says we're light. We're called to be light. What's the light? I believe he's saying he wants to use us to, to pull people out of the darkness of the dead religious structures of men and into the light of a true living relationship with the living God. You know, religion, religion is just something men make up when God isn't around. Is that not true? Because when God's present, nobody tries to put him in a box. You hear what I'm saying? Nobody makes up a plan when God's present, you're just stunned. But it's when God isn't present that we begin making structures to prop up the organization, and that's the thing called religion. And it doesn't matter what the religion is called, even if it's a Christian religion, it's darkness. If people, men and women and young people, are not encountering God, somebody needs to bring the light. And this is the intention of God. He wants to make us salt, and he wants to make us light. That means that we are willing to bring the caustic nature of the salt and the uncompromised message of the light. But a terrible and insidious thing has crept into the American church over the last 30 years. I was a student of it. I was a participant in it. And I've been fighting against it for the last 20 years. It's called the church growth movement. And it was something that with good intention, people started to develop in the 1970s, then it got really big in the 1980s. What happened was the American church, particularly the conservative American church, you know, in the 1960s really wreaked havoc on the American church. Because in the 50s and 60s, we were enlightened, we were scientific, we proved that God is dead. So why are we fussing with all this church? And people were leaving churches in droves. And church leaders go, oy vey, something must be done. And so one of the things that was done and really got traction was people came together and they started talking about, well, what would bring them back? Talked about what people don't like about church. Well, let's change that. And in the beginning, it was we can't compromise the message, but let's change that so that we can get the people back. And the church growth movement was born. And it became a marketing strategy. How can we get the attention of people? Find a need and fill it. And it drew people back. And at first, it was kind of a bait and switch because it was like, you know, if we can get them back in the room, well, then we can tell them about the gospel. Boom! Well, people were too savvy for that, and they realized, well, a guy named Norm Juan, he came up with this idea, you keep them the way you caught them. And so if you catch them with certain amenities, you got to keep them that way. And this is something called the church growth movement. But in the process, there were compromises made. 
And the, the thought was to make the church an attractive place from the world's perspective. And there were compromises made along the way. In the process, so much of the church has shifted from salt and light to sugar and spice. Just make, just make it comfortable. Let's not ask anything of anybody. Let's make it comfortable. And uh, before I make these next critical comments about the church growth movement, I want to say to you, I love coffee. All right? Ain't nobody in this room likes coffee more than me. Oh, may I have that? Thank you. <laughs> I love the way it smells. I love the way it tastes. I love the way it makes me feel. You should thank God that there's coffee. I'm a better person to you because of coffee. All right? So I have no problem with coffee. People drinking coffee. And I mean, from last week, some of you are still wondering if I still smoke cigarettes, I think. You know. <laughs> I'm just going to let you struggle with that one. But what has shifted is the intention in a lot of American church life where the plan is to get, attract people into the room as soon as they walk in the door, get them the best cup of coffee you can make. Sit them in the softest chair. Bring on the show. Bring on the entertainment. Lots of production. Lots of bells and whistles. Lots of interesting flashes of this and that and video and lots of this. And then give them a self-actualization message. Tell them that they can be all that they can be. And that's true of the gospel. It's just the door is on the other side. And then don't ever expect too much of them. Be careful how hard you push them. Because if you push them too hard, they won't come back. And you have the lowest expectation of any uh, uh, on, on them. And no, not really expecting any true sacrifice or discipleship to occur as long as the numbers are working. As long as you can keep the seats filled and the offering baskets sufficient to pay for all this stuff that you've bought. Let's top it off with a really wonderful sports program during the week. Now, first of all, I don't have a problem with coffee or sports or anything. But I'm just saying, what's happened to the church? What's happened to the church? Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, go build big churches with cushy chairs and big productions. He said, make disciples of all nations. Yes? He said, you're salt and light. And this other thing that's happening in the church is what Heidi Baker calls the American church's backup plan for when God doesn't show up. Heidi Baker, many of you know, is a great missionary in Mozambique and tremendous personality. And I was kind of struggling this week, and Karen threw a book at me, Compelled by Love by Heidi Baker. She says, here, read this. You'll feel better. At page 10, my head is all messed up again, you know, about God and how much he loves us. And, and she said, you know, and her experience backs up everything that she says. So cool. She said that, you know, this soft church that has come up in America is a result of a backup plan since God wasn't showing up. It was man taking it into his own hands, saying, well, we need to keep the people here. 
And there have been other backup plans that have come along the way, and you can still see expressions of them in the American church today. External morality, for example, is a backup plan. If God isn't showing up, well, let's make a whole bunch of rules and let's keep people out who don't follow exactly our rules, and you need to come here because that's one of the rules. God isn't showing. You know, when God shows up, the morality takes care of itself. I don't know if you realize this or not. When God shows up, my last thought is to go find a nickel bag. <laughs> Another backup plan in some churches is, is political reform. God ain't showing up. Well, let's dig in and let's tell people how to vote and what to think. Some of you are still wondering about my politics. Because sometimes I say something that causes you to go, yeah, he's on our side. And I say something else and you go, I don't know if he's on our side, honey. Well, that's because po- politics is important, but it's not church. It's not church. You don't need to come to church, have them tell you what to think politically. You, churches do that in the absence of God. Another is nationalism and patriotism. Churches become very patriotic. We're here, and I love America. But it has practically nothing to do with what I want to see happen in this, because I want to, what I want to see happen in this room is the same thing I've seen happen in India and Brazil. It has nothing to do with the United States of America. I want God to show up. And these are backup plans. We don't have time for that These are backup plans that churches make for when God doesn't show up. They're desperate attempts to ease the pain of the obvious absence of God. And I understand that desperation, but when God God is present, when God is present, all of these things take care of themselves substantially. We're called to be salt and light, not sugar and spice. I believe Jesus coupled these two things together Because it's important that we become both salt and light. You don't get to pick. I have met some people who seem to enjoy being salt. You just take some pleasure in being that caustic message. The bearer of bad news. I I, I don't know what's wrong with you. I think you should start your own church. They just take pleasure in that. I'm not saying there's never a time for confrontation. Of course, we're called to be salt, but also called to be light. To be light. To be the answer. You pour the salt in the wound, you purify it, and then you heal it in the name of Jesus. I've met some people who are agents of light but are afraid to be the salt. Your light grows dim. It's just not ready. The situation isn't ready for the light until you've poured the salt. Make sense? Paul was both. I love Romans 3, 23, so many of you know. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Does anybody know verse 24? It says, and are justified freely through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So the salt, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ouch. And are justified freely through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus is the rest of his statement. That's the light. For the wages of sin is death, salt, but, who knows the rest of that verse? The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Light. 
We're called to be salt and light. It's the systole and diastole of the heart. You can't just say, I'm going to run on systole today. I'm just going to let my ventricles do the work. Was that too technical? <laughs> I feel like people are going... I forgot. It's a product of the West Side School System. I should always remember that. So you got four chambers in your heart. The two <laughs> you can't have one without the other. It's like the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. I've seen people outrun their measure of the fruit of the Spirit with the gifts of the Spirit and do more harm than good. I've seen people sit in the fruit of the Spirit and never venture out into the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they're just, and they're just nice people. <laughs> You've got to have the salt. You've got to have the light. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit to do this transformation in us. He wants to radically transform us into something we're not. And it's His work. So we just keep showing up to wherever He is. Because I want God's true plan for the church, not man's backup plan, don't you? And, and God's plan for the church over and over again is that He wants to be present. He wants expressions of His presence, manifestations of His glory. Some of you experienced that this morning. And I want, to be, I want to be wherever God is, don't you? And I want to do whatever we need to do to make sure that there's a clear opening for the Holy Spirit to come and take over. Always. I just want to be wherever God is present. And I, I was praying that prayer this morning before anything was happening here, really. Just a couple of intercessors come here real early on Sundays, and I was praying that prayer, Lord, we just need your presence, Lord, and I just want to be, I just want to be where you are. And the Holy Spirit asked me a one-word question back. It was so clear. He said, really? I never like it when those kind of questions come. I always know there's something else. I'm like, yeah, really? Really? And then by about 7.30 this morning, the band was here, and they were coming together, and they were praying. We were praying. People in the booth were up here and praying with the band, and Amy was leading, and so she's leading the prayer time. And, and, and without even realizing anything, here's along the lines of what she prayed. I mean, I could tell she was stirred, and she said, Lord, um, something like, Lord, there are people in the world who right now are being beheaded because they are Christians. And here we are, getting ready to do a sound check. And she, and she just prayed so beautifully, uh, Lord, we don't know how to reconcile those two things, why we get to be these people. And then she prayed, but Lord, I know that you are the God of both places. And I was drawn into this place in prayer. I was standing right there. I was drawn into this place in prayer where I saw God moving in these areas where, where you know, people are being executed for their faith. And God is so present in those places. His spirit is so powerful and real. And I'm still on the heels of this, Lord. I just want to be wherever, wherever you are present. And the Lord spoke this question to me. He said, are you willing to go to Sudan if I call you to do that? I 
I didn't know the answer. I didn't have an answer for that question. We pray this prayer. Oh God, we want your presence. Oh God, we want your presence. Let's think about the power of that prayer. Let's think about the point on the end of that spear. So Lord, we long for your presence here now. We pray for our brothers in Sudan and China and other parts of the world, Lord, who are giving their lives because they call your name. But here we are, right here in this room. We drove our cars, we had breakfast, we came, we drank coffee, we came, we here, we've got things to do this afternoon, and our lives are going on pretty much unhindered. Some of us have struggles we're in right now, but we have a sense that we'll be out of them and life will be unhindered again. But God, wherever we are, whatever's going on, we know that the deepest cry inside of us is to know you, is to know you, and to move and revel in the experience of your love. God, you know I want nothing else other than the move of your spirit, the manifestation of your presence in this church and in the lives of every seeking person, Lord. You know it doesn't matter to me how well they're pulling it off, or if they've just failures at everything they're trying, doesn't make a nickel's worth of difference. Those two people are the same people to me, Lord, and I just pray that the power of God will come on them. The presence of God will come on them. You'll take care of all the rest. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and minister, touch the reality of who you are in that place where we can hear you and know you. Come, Lord, we pray. Just come. Father, we just pray that you come.